I'm going to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll be continuing on today in our series in the book of Romans. Um, It has been a wonderful privilege so far to explore what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean that we've been credited with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and that we're credited that way just by faith, not by anything that we do, no, by, by no works, by, by no actions that we earn, but we're credited as righteous by faith. And it's by faith in Jesus Christ who loved himself and, and gave himself for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And this morning, we get to hear about the benefits of that justification in which we stand, the, the benefits that we receive and which are cause for joy. So turn in Romans 5 with me, if you will. Uh, something we did last week, we're going to do again this week. Maybe not every week, though, okay? So not every week, but for those who are able to stand, I would love if you, we could all stand for the reading of God's Word. This is a way that we can worship God, that we can actually um, show His Word honor, because only His Word is perfect. That's the only perfect thing you're going to hear today, is this perfect Word from God. So let's give honor to His Word as worship as we read it together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die For a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, so often we, we struggle for joy. So often we wrestle for joy because of our circumstances, because of suffering, because of difficulties, because of the challenges that we face. Lord, so often we wrestle for joy because our minds tell us that, that you should still be angry with us even though your word says differently. God, I pray for each and every one of us here that you would impart your joy this morning. By your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would grasp the benefits of being justified in you and that we would understand the benefits that we have, God, and we would revel in those benefits that we receive from justification. And I pray that we would stand securely and stand joyfully. In Jesus' name I pray, Lord. And God, I pray as well that you would enable all of us who are here to hear your word, God. Give us endurance to hear, Lord. Help us listen, apply your word. Help us be faithful to your word, Lord. And I pray that you would empower and enable me to speak by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I still remember my first trip to the county fair in Frederick County, Virginia. It was a big deal. My family didn't have a lot of money. We couldn't really afford to do a lot of things like that. And so it was a big deal. Somewhere around 12 years old, we went to my very first fair. And I was excited because I'd heard all about it. You know, I grew up in the the boonies in Virginia as a country boy. And um, that was a big deal. That was what you always want to do, go see the fair. I mean, that year I think they had Lee Greenwood come and sing. You know, it it was huge. 
If you don't know who Lee Greenwood is, look him up. It's not impressive. Um, he had one song, and I think that was it. But um, the, the, the thing about the fair was we got in, and I was so excited. And, and at first, it was really cool because there was lots of, like, tractors and engines to look at, all kinds of stuff that was fun. And um, we got to look at displays and, you know, whatever, award-winning canned peaches and all the other things you expect at a county fair. And then... The things, though, that I really wanted to go see, I heard that there was this demolition derby. If you know what that is or not, they have a bunch of old cars and they crash into each other. It's, it's sheer mayhem and it's, it's spectacular for a 12-year-old boy. So uh, I really wanted to go to that. And then, then they had something called a tractor pool. And, and then they had other things as well. And they had these rides all over the place. They had this, this thing that spun around called the Gravitron. You know, it spun around so fast that it made you want to puke, but you couldn't. And, and I wanted to go on all those things. The only problem was we didn't have much money and, and we couldn't go on those things. And I was surprised to find that with the fair, your admission price, it didn't get you much. Um, you got to get in there and see all the things that you couldn't do unless you had more money. And uh, we didn't have more money, so that didn't happen. The only thing we had money for, which I'll, is a different story for a different day, was the grease pig catching contest. And I won. But anyway... <laughs> I told you I grew up in rural Virginia, so, <laughs> um, so you have the, the fair that you get in, but you can't actually do much unless you pay for everything. Not the greatest experience, kind of a letdown. I remember, though, the next year I'd been mowing lawns that summer, and I saved up a lot of money, and I got to go to this place called King's Dominion a couple hours away. It was, it was wonderful. It was tons of amusement. Uh, rides everywhere, roller coasters, all kinds of things. And, and although it took a lot of money to get in, once you got in, everything, all the rides were free. They didn't cost anything. It was like Carowinds, but, but a lot more rides. And, and it was exciting. And I think for a 13-year-old, I couldn't have been in a happier place. You know, you have roller coasters and all kinds of spinny things and things where the bottom drops out of the floor and your face sucks up against the wall and, and all those things that, that really aren't enjoyable now. And, um, but they were enjoyable then, and it was excitement, and it was joy. And, and you know, for a 13-year-old kid, you can think of no greater joy when you're 13 of, oh my goodness, I get to enjoy this, this unlimited access. And it was a day of just huge rejoicing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been talking a lot about our justification, our, our being declared righteous, our being made righteous by faith. He's been talked about how that righteousness has been credited to us, that the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to us. And that's amazing. That's a wonderful ticket. But it's not like a fair ticket. This is like the amusement park ticket that never ends. We're given access to unlimited rejoicing. We're giving access to to a source of joy. And the question is, are you aware of that? Are you aware that this is all free? You don't pay. That you, you get to enjoy all of the benefits of being justified by faith. Paul tells us in the very beginning, the very first verse of this chapter, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, and then he launches into the benefits of the gospel. He launches into the benefits that we receive as we get this, this unlimited lifetime ticket, this entry into God's presence, this, this gift of righteousness. That we've been made righteous. And and I I think the the main idea that God would have us get today is that if we grasp the benefits of being justified by faith, if we grasp the benefits, we will have joy. Or maybe we can have joy. But I'll say if you really do grasp the benefits, if you truly lay hold of these benefits of justification that the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage, you will have joy. Now I'm not talking about you know, you're always at this level 10, that you're pretending that nothing is wrong kind of joy. That's, that's not real. That's false. That's, that's joy doesn't take into account situations in reality. But there is a joy that God has for us that is, that is able to endure all things. That's there as an endless supply. If you remember back in the beginning of Romans, in, in Romans 1.18, Paul began to write about the wrath of God. 
he began to write that, that the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And then skip down, if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along this, this train of thought the Apostle Paul has been sharing with us, giving to us. And in Romans 2, verse 5, it says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, he actually says that you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. There's a day when wrath is coming, it's going to be poured out, poured out fully, and we're storing up that wrath. If you're not righteous in Christ, you're storing up wrath. And then in Romans 3.20, he explains that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And then he says in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But then he gives us some good news in Romans 3. 21 and 22, he says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He's been showing us this good news that although we all deserve wrath, there's a way that we can receive, instead of wrath, God's righteousness by faith. And that's all good news, but if you don't understand the effects of this good news, you see, this is wonderful news, it's marvelous news, it's, it's entry into glorious joy, but if you don't understand what lies behind the gates, what the benefits of that justification are, then you're going to struggle with joy. But if you do understand, if you do understand what, what the grounds are, what the, the benefits are for our justification it's, it's like the difference of receiving a ticket to the county fair with no more money for the rides. Or it's like receiving that lifelong platinum pass to the amusement park of your dreams. The first benefit that, that Paul talks about, the very first benefit, is really astounding. Because he's been talking about how we deserve God's wrath, we were enemies in the very beginning, he talks about the first benefit, and that is peace. He talks about we can have peace with God. You see, it's peace with God that gives us cause for rejoicing. Peace with God gives us cause for rejoicing. You know, we were once separated from God. We were strangers. We were, we were alienated from him. We were only facing God's wrath But now we've got peace with God. Now think about that for a minute. What does it mean to have peace with someone? What does it mean to be at peace with somebody? What does it mean to possess an abiding, lasting peace with someone else? You know, peace is is not just the absence of war. It's the ceasing of any and all hostility. It's a settled, it's a safe condition. It's, It's where there's no threat of violence or harm. Some of us don't come from backgrounds that are peaceful. It's hard for us to comprehend what it means to have a peaceful home or a peaceful relationship or a peaceful past because it's eluded many. But we have a peace with God that is far greater than any earthly peace. We have a peace that that when we mess up, when we fail again, when when we're tempted to feel like God is angry with us and hostile towards us, the Apostle Paul says, no, the grounds of your justification, the benefit of your justification is that you have peace with God. God's no longer hostile towards you. Even when you mess up, he's at rest with you. You have rest in him. The good news is our peace as well. It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a peace that's not dependent on you. This is a peace that's not dependent on how you feel. It's a peace that's not dependent on how well you keep God's laws. You don't have to tiptoe around God worrying about whether or not you'll mess up. Thinking like, you know, maybe you had a parent that expressed displeasure with you by either being angry or cold towards you. God's not like that. You don't have to think, okay, what do I have to do so I I can placate God? I I need to watch what I say because God's going to be displeased with me. No, we have peace. We have rest. We have acceptance and fellowship with God. If a country tries to secure a peace treaty with another country, the goal is to secure safety, to secure tranquility or harmony is to allow for good and an open relationship between those countries. Desire for any peace treaty is there might be nothing to fear from the other country. 
God has given us a lasting peace that is based on the treaty, the covenant that he has with us in the blood of Jesus' son that was ratified in the blood of Jesus and that was proven to be acceptable by his resurrection. We have a sure peace with God. And verse 2 tells us that not only do we have peace with God, we have access into this grace. We have access into this grace. And you see, access into this grace gives great cause for rejoicing. If you're struggling for joy this morning, I pray that you would meditate on the fact that I've got peace with God no matter what I feel like, no matter whether I have peace with other people or not, no matter whether I feel peace about situations or circumstances, I always possess peace with God. And then I want you to understand as well the cause for joy that we have is that we have access into this grace, Paul says, this grace of God, this this unmitigated grace that Jesus has earned for us. You know, the benefit of God making us righteous through him and so we have access into the very grace of God. It's not just peace, it's access. If Germany were to make a treaty, which I'm sure they have peace with Saudi Arabia, if they were to make a treaty with Saudi Arabia and they have peace with Saudi Arabia, it wouldn't mean that the citizens of Germany would have access to live in Saudi Arabia. It wouldn't mean that the citizens of Germany would have access to all the oil wealth of Saudi Arabia, nor would they have access to the king in that kingdom. It would only mean the ceasing of hostility, and Paul says it's not only peace that's caused for joy, it is access. You have access into this grace, the favor of the king and his kingdom. You know, sometimes... Lobbyists or special interests you can read about. They'll try to pay a bribe or give something to a politician in order to get access to the politician. They hope that by being close to the politician or the person in power that they have, if they have access to them, that maybe they can get their ideas across and maybe they can convince that politician, that person in power to be favorable to them. This is not that kind of peace. This is the kind of peace that we have unmitigated open access to God as our Father, and we receive his favor automatically. He's always favorable. It takes no convincing, no cajoling, no bribery. We don't bribe God by saying, look, God, look, I've lived a good life, and I've done some good things, and look, God, I've had all my quiet times this week. That's that's not the grace that we stand in. The grace that we stand in is God's favor because of Christ's righteousness. And he pours out his favor completely. And he says, you always have my favor. You're never in a place of disfavor. You know, very few people have free and unfettered access to the president of the United States. There's guards there to make sure, hopefully, that nobody gets close, that nobody gets in to see them. And if you, even if you did get a tour of the White House, you wouldn't be able to see the president, even if you did glimpse the president, you wouldn't be able to go up and just talk to them and ask them how they're doing. And, hey, by the way, talk about this problem I'm having. Can you fix it? You wouldn't have that kind of access. Access means something. Access means something. That's why there's such a, a great brouhaha in the media right now about, wait a minute, did, did foreign countries have access to the president beforehand? Whether or not this true is irrelevant, what, what is important is that access actually means something. And we all know that. It entails privilege. You know, lots of people are seeking access to important people, trying to climb the social ladder so they can get things and have those benefits that go along with knowing a person in power or of prestige or a celebrity. And you know, the more important the person is that you have access to, the more special and influential that access is, Right? Think about the most influential person you have access to. You know, maybe you're tempted to brag about that. And, you know, hey, it's kind of cool. You know, I've met the president or I've done this or, I've, you know, I've access to this person. But let me tell you that to have access to God, the creator, the king over all, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who, who spoke the cosmos into existence and sustains all things, that's staggering access. What? What, what more access could you want? 
what, what greater influencer could you want to know? You know, who cares whether or not you have access to a governor or a senator or the president or whoever you think is really cool to have access to? Who cares? You've got access to God. You have access to God and you receive his favor. It's favored access. It's his gracious access. It's access to him. That's, it's not just saying he's begrudgingly letting you in. He is favoring you. That should be cause for rejoicing. It's crazy. It's nuts. It's better than the Gravitron. I mean, this is, this is cause for rejoicing. And he says it's God's grace that enables us to stand. We stand in God's favor. We are continually standing by and in God's favor. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have the kind of faith that God credits his righteousness that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. It means God looks on us favorably and withholds no good thing from us. That we, we truly need. Now we don't always know what we need. But on top of having peace with God. Look down your Bibles and access to God. Standing in his grace. We also have the benefit of being able to rejoice in hope. And he talks about two kinds of hope here, but I want you to see that, that hope gives us cause for rejoicing. That's, that's kind of the third idea here that the Apostle Paul is getting across to us, is that hope gives us cause for rejoicing. And you're thinking, wait a minute, but, but I, don't, I don't have the hope, or I don't know how to get the hope. And the Apostle Paul explains what hope we already have. This is not like when we use the word, I hope I get this for Christmas, This is a sure and certain thing that is in the future, a sure and certain possession. It's it's that sure hope. And the first hope that he says is we hope in the glory of God. And that's our cause for rejoicing. Now I think, wait a minute, how is hoping in the glory of God, what, what, what does that mean? How does that give us hope? If you realize that we only deserved wrath, One day, though, we will be given the glory of God. We who were inglorious or unglorious, we who who lacked in all glory, we who were ungodly, will, will be given the very glory of God. And we rejoice in this sure hope that God is giving us his very own glory. Think about that, because the Apostle Paul said in in Romans that we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us measure up to the glory that we were created to to display. We all were created as image bearers. We all were created as as reflectors, as people who would image or mirror back the glory of God, because the glory of God would shine on us, and we would shine forth his glory, and we were created to do that. And so Paul's indictment earlier was, we all fall short of the glory of God that we're meant to bear. We don't do that. And now he says, you have a hope that one day God will give you that glory, will restore you fully back to be in the image of God, so you reflect God perfectly. Man, I can't wait for that day. That is a sure hope. That is cause for rejoicing that one day I'll be restored perfectly back like Adam before the fall so that I reflect God's glory and goodness. That's cause for rejoicing. One day we'll shine with the light of his glory like the the moon reflects the sun. I can't imagine how joy-filled and humbling and glorious it will be that We get to shine with his glory and point to him as the source and say, yes, and all comes from him. But look at verses 3 and 4. In these verses, Paul writes of hope as something else. It's the second kind of hope he talks about. We have hope in the glory of God. But then he talks about something that doesn't, doesn't sit well with many North Americans or many people in the 21st century. He says, we have, we rejoice in suffering Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We rejoice in suffering because of the hope that we know will come. That's what the Apostle Paul here is saying to us, but it's something that really seems a little odd. Right? If you're saying, wait a minute, how how can I rejoice 
in suffering. How is that a benefit to rejoice in suffering because I, it gives hope? What, what does that mean? It doesn't feel good to suffer. It's not good to suffer. And Paul's not saying that you should actually like suffering or be a masochist of some kind, that you should bring on the suffering. No, that's that's not at all what he's talking about. He's saying you can rejoice in the midst of suffering because you know you have a certain hope that it will produce endurance and character. And that will fuel your hope as well. Probably saying, hang on, I, I get to having peace and access and grace. Those are incredible benefits being justified with by God, but how in the world do we benefit in sufferings? <laughs> Still, I remember seeing a, a picture after a friend of mine named Josh. He went down to basic training in Alabama, and he visited this little town, and he was living right outside of an enterprise, Alabama. And he showed me this picture, and um, it was a bull weevil. It was a bull weevil monument. And from those from Alabama, um, I'm sure you're filled with a little bit of pride and embarrassment, both. And uh, I, I, I get the latter, at least. And in Enterprise, they have maybe the strangest monument I've ever seen right in the center of town. And it's not quite dark enough, but that is kind of a, a Romanesque kind of statue holding this platform. And on top of it is a giant bull weevil. It really is. And it's, it's for real. It's for real. It's not a mockery. That's the bull weevil monument. But if you understand the background, then it makes a lot of sense and it really applies. And then you think, that's really cool. Man, I want to be like Enterprise. Only in the Bull Weevil Monument. Not, not other things, by the way. But, um, for, you know, for years, the entire town was based, the, the livelihood for the town was based on this cotton crop. Ever since the, before the Civil War and then after the Civil War, um, all the surrounding areas, all they did was make cotton. And the town had never really been successful, never really prosperous on cotton alone. And, and they would be up and down from year to year based on the success of the cotton crop. But they kind of made it and everything was fine. And because everything was fine, like most of us, they were content and complacent with, with the situation. But in 1915... This little creature called the bull weevil, because it lives inside the bowl of cotton, the seed of cotton, it, it came and infested all the crops around. And within a year, 60% of their entire cotton crop was decimated. And then the then following year, they had another similar percentage of what remained. And so they had nothing all of a sudden. So you might be thinking, why in the world would they make a monument to this destructive little bugger, you know? Why would they do that? Are they just that crazy in the South, you know? Well, the answer is partially yes, but I love, I love what the sign says. You can't quite read it. It's a little, little blurry, but it says something that's neat. It says, in profound appreciation of the boll weevil and what it has done as the herald of prosperity. Because you know what the boll weevil forced them to do? It forced them to start thinking, wait a minute, we can't rely on cotton alone. We can't rely on the single crop. And so they started to diversify. And some guy named Sessions, something Sessions, Henry Sessions or something like that, came along. And he suggested, hey, there's this new crop. It's called a peanut. And this was before George Washington Carver and, and his huge advances with the peanut. And, but this guy said, hey, there's this crop. It's called a peanut. We should plant it. They planted it. All of a sudden, they got a massive return on their investment. And by 1918, just, just three years later, the town was not only out of you know, complete foreclosure in every farm. They were in the place of prosperity. Because this bull weevil had this suffering had produced endurance and that endurance had produced character and they diversified their crops and then they had hope. Now enterprise, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, it's known as the the peanut capital of the south. They got peanut statues all over town. It's pretty funny. They got like the peanut newspaper guy. It's it's not not relevant to here, but I just thought it was interesting. (laughs) Six foot tall peanut people all over the place. But they had the right perspective on their suffering. They had the right perspective. They actually had a a biblical perspective on something that was not good because it was the herald of something very good. We 
we know that our suffering is not because God is punishing us as believers. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be certain any suffering you're currently enduring is not because God's displeased with you. It's not because God's angry at you. No suffering will ever separate us from God. We permanently have access to God. We have peace with God. We have grace from God. We can be sure that any suffering we go through is not because we got on bad, God's bad side. No, we stand confident in the grace of God. You know, to go through suffering any other way would be very hopeless. And sometimes we actually allow ourselves to go through suffering in a very hopeless way. But to suffer without the ability to appeal to God's grace and rest in his grace, that would be hopeless. To suffer knowing you deserve God's wrath and to suffer under his wrath, knowing that one day all of his wrath will be poured out, that would be hopeless. But we rejoice in suffering, Paul says, knowing that any time we suffer as Christians, it will produce endurance in us. That may not sound like a good thing, but it is. You see, our bodies um, reflect even that. They show us that sometimes our bodies, physically, we have to go through hard things in order to be made stronger. You know, personally, I was telling somebody the other day that, you know, I, I, I hate running. I, well, I shouldn't say hate running for all the kids here. I'm sorry, I... I apologize to your parents. I don't enjoy running, but when I was running, I did it because I saw what the benefits of it were. I know I should enjoy running, but I find it kind of pointless. I find it kind of monotonous, mind-numbing. It doesn't feel good. It makes me uncomfortable. It, you know, it makes me all sweaty and hot and red-faced, and I have a hard time breathing, and it, it doesn't feel good. But when I run, or, or at least walk, I, I know that it produces endurance in me. You know, the counter is true, too. If I don't run, if I don't do physical activity, if I don't do things that are hard for me, I actually will have very little endurance. You know, running is maybe the smallest form of suffering. It's not suffering. And, and by the way, don't misunderstand me. I am so grateful that I have legs and that I have muscles and bones and a nervous system and a heart and lungs that allow me to run. And so I actually correct my attitude when I run and say, you know, thank you, God. As, as annoying as this is, it's a wonderful privilege because you've enabled me to do something that if you had not enabled me, I would not be able to do. But really what keeps me going is I, I know that it strengthens your leg muscles. It Increases your lung capacity, it makes your heart stronger, increases your bone density, it, it, it actually has some mental benefits, it, it, it releases endorphins and, and, and helps you relieve stress and, and it helps you get through the minor pains and difficulty and, and it creates a mental endurance to, to let you know that if you do hard things, if you persevere through the minor pain and difficulty, you will grow stronger. And Paul says that our suffering is like that. Our suffering produces endurance, and that endurance produces a proven character, which is something we all want to be like, Jesus, right? So it produces the character of Christ in us. If you say you want to be like Jesus and you sing that wonderful kid's song, I want to be like Jesus, God says you may need to suffer because you're in need of endurance. So you're going to need to go through some hard things to endure. Not because God doesn't love you, it's actually the reverse. God's not punishing you. So we can rejoice in suffering if you're a believer, knowing that our suffering is meant to produce endurance and endurance is meant to produce character and that gives us hope. It produces hope that God's really at work in suffering. Hope that we're growing. You know, we need endurance if we are to run the race set before us. That's how the Apostle Paul refers to the Christian life as this, this race, this marathon that is stretched out before us. And if you want to run with endurance a race that is set before us, we must go through suffering. The book of Acts tells us that, that, that the Christian life is filled with tribulation. If you want to reach the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus, we must run the race to finish. And if you want to run the race, you need endurance. And if you need endurance, you're going to need to suffer. And it's not my opinion. And think about who wrote this for a moment. This is the Apostle Paul. He wasn't glib about suffering. 
He wasn't flippant. He didn't belittle suffering. He didn't say that it's no big deal. And that's baloney. We should never act like suffering is no big deal. It hurts. It's painful, sometimes excruciatingly so. We can suffer relationally. We can suffer physically, mentally, emotionally. Suffering itself is not good. When the Apostle Paul was whipped to, to the edge of his life, it was not good. When he was beaten, when he was stoned and left for dead because they thought he was dead, could not find a pulse, it wasn't that they were dumb. When he was shipwrecked, when, when he was abandoned by all of his friends, when his closest friends and the people who he, he shared the gospel with were children of faith, when they all deserted him, and he was in prison, abandoned and alone, He wasn't, you know, acting like suffering is good. He's saying we can rejoice in suffering. And he comes alongside us like an older brother and says, you can get through this because God will enable you to endure. And, and when you endure, God will produce character. And as he's producing character, that will give you hope. And you can rejoice in that. It's not a false hope like the hope that we're going to win the Powerball lottery. You know, that's a, that's a feeble, false, distant dream. It's unrealistic to put our hope in that. You know, if somebody told you that the reason why they were quitting their job, they're like, hey, I quit today. I bought a Powerball ticket. You'd be like, dude, you're nuts. Get back to work. You're either crazy or lazy or both. Seriously? So you got a wife and kids... And let me get this straight. You bought 10 Powerball tickets and that's, and so now you're, you're set? That's not that kind of wishful thinking. That would put you to shame, is what the Apostle Paul is, is saying. It's not that kind of hope that puts to shame. We have a hope that does not put to shame. We have a hope that's anchored in great assurance, and that's what we're going to see in verses 5 to 11. We're going to see causes or reasons that we have assurance. God gives us assurance that the hope we have is genuine and real. That he gives us assurance that we really have hope, that we really have grace, that we really have peace with God. We really have these benefits, and we can be sure, and his assurance gives us cause for rejoicing. And there's at least two ways that we have assurance. And the first you'll see is the assurance of his love. Both our experience of his love. He says, because God's love has been shed abroad in your hearts. And then also the objective fact that if you have God's love, if you experience God's love, you can know that that only comes by the Holy Spirit of God who gives that to you. The kind of love we have doesn't put us to shame. The kind of hope we have doesn't put us to shame because we have God's love. We know it's not empty because God's poured his love in our hearts. And you know that only can happen if you have a desire to love God. If you have affection for God. If you experience his love for you. That can only happen in a heart that has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. And transformed by his grace to enable you to love God to begin with. That You can have a sure, sure and certain hope. Because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts, is what he's saying. And then he says the Holy Spirit, is, that means the Holy Spirit's been given to us. And his Holy Spirit, it's like a stamp certifying that we're genuine. That, that we have genuine hope because we have God's love. And God's love only comes through the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're, if you're one of those people, and I don't mean that disparagingly, but if you're one of the kinds of folks who likes or enjoys organic food, and you might look on a package for a label that says certified USDA organic, and so you think, okay, that gives me some hope that it really is what it says it is. The problem with that is you don't know the person who put that stamp there, and whether you can really trust the, the individual or the company or whoever put that there. You hope but it's not certain. Paul says you have a more certain hope. It's the Holy Spirit. And in other places he talks about the Holy Spirit being a seal or, or like a stamp. Because you've received the Holy Spirit, because you have the love for God and God's love poured out in you, you have a certain hope and it's trustworthy. It's been given by the Holy Spirit. And then he, he says we have a sure hope because the love we have is, is real. 
God's love is not fickle. And he explains that. Look in verse 6. It says, he explains the kind of love that God has for us in verses 6 and 7 and 8. And look in your Bibles if you have them, or if not, we have it on the screen for you. He explains the kind of love. Why? How can you be certain that the love you have is not fickle? How can you be certain that God still loves you even when you do things that are wrong, when you mess up? How do you know that? How do you have that certain hope? Paul says, while we were weak, while we were unable, is really what that word means. It says Christ died. He didn't just say Christ died for us when we were weak. We were weak and unable but we were also completely ungodly, unrighteous. And yet Christ died for us when we were earning his wrath. He died for the weak and ungodly. And then he says, you know, no, you know who in the world in their right mind would die for even a righteous person? Okay, maybe for a good person someone might dare to die. But then he says in verse in 8, he says, for, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were actively sinning, in the midst of our active rebellion against God, in the midst of your active sin against God, when you were too weak to follow him, too weak to respond, when you were totally ungodly, when you're actively sinning, says Christ died for us. How do you know your hope is certain? Because God's love has been demonstrated with all certainty. Who in the world would send their son to go and die for scoundrels? Think about it. I mean, if you're a parent here, or if you can imagine being a parent someday, think about it. If you have a son, and it's the only one you've got, who would send that son to go and die for a scoundrel or a rebel or a lawbreaker? Somebody who deserved jail and was on death row, just waiting for the sentence to be carried out. Would you... Would you send your son to die for somebody like that? Would you think, you know what? Um, those, those guys on death row who actually admitted it and they're still sinning and they're still killing people in jail. They're still actively murdering. I'm going to give my son for them. I, I don't think so. And, and yet, that's the kind of love that God had for us is what the Apostle Paul is saying. A sure demonstration of love that we can hope in. And the second assurance we have from God is, is our salvation. Look in verse 9. He says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in addition to our peace and our access to God and his grace and the hope we have of his love, we can be certain that we're going to be saved from any future wrath to come. You know, Romans 2, 8 and 9, it told us in the Apostle Paul, he's been building his logic really up to these verses so that these verses result in great joy. Romans chapter 5 is meant to be calls for a great joy because of Romans chapter 2 and verse 8 when he says, for those who are self-seeking. Let me ask you, who here has ever been self-seeking? He says, for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he says, there will be fury and wrath. It's a promise. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Those who don't have the righteousness of Christ, there'll be wrath and fury, tribulation, distress, everybody who does evil. But the very next verse tells us something. And it's interesting how Paul's setting us up in Romans 2, and then he goes on from there. He says in Romans 2.10, But glory and honor, instead of wrath and fury and tribulation and distress, he says something else. And you think, oh, this is really good in Romans 2. But then after Romans 2, he dispels that. He says, But there will be glory and honor and peace. Did you notice some of those same words in this passage? There'll be glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and the Greek. And the problem is a little later, Paul says, but there's no one who does good. There's no one who does righteous. But then he tells us, but if you believe in God like Abraham did, if you believe in God who is able to raise the dead to life, 
who calls into the existence the things that do not exist, if you have the faith that Abraham had, and you have that faith in Jesus Christ that God raised him from the dead, and that he, he, put, he displayed him for your forgiveness on the cross, and that he was raised for your new life, if you have that faith that God is the one who calls into life the things that did not exist, then he said, remember he says in the last chapter, that, that God credits the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus. So now in Romans 2.10, what the Apostle Paul is saying in, in Romans 5 is we can claim the blessings of Romans 2.10 where he says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. What he's saying in Romans chapter 5 is you are those who God sees as doing good. You are those who God sees as good because you've been credited with all the goodness that Jesus Christ has done. For if, look in verse 10, if you will, in your Bibles, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled. So if you were not reconciled before and he's died for you, now that you are reconciled and he's living, he said you can have even more confidence because you're no longer an enemy you no longer hated. You've been reconciled. So how much more will the life of Christ give you joy and hope? He says, so much more so shall we be saved by his life. It keeps getting better. Look in verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God. Do you rejoice in God? He says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than being saved from wrath, we rejoice in God. Now, not only do we have no reason to fear, he's saying you have, you have reason to rejoice. Maybe you're struggling with joy. Maybe you're fighting for joy. Maybe you're experiencing difficult, challenging situations and circumstances. Maybe you're struggling realistically for joy. And on a scale of one to ten, you're like, yeah, I'm a two. And two being, one being the lowest, Okay. So you're like, yeah, I'm a two right now. The Apostle Paul has written these things. God has written these things, given these things to us by the Holy Spirit so that we might rejoice and we might remind ourselves that we have peace with God and think about the implications of that, that we might know that we have access into God, that we stand in his grace, that we have the joy of knowing that he's given us and will give us fully his very own glory, not his wrath, and that not only that, we can rejoice in sufferings knowing that he's going to produce endurance and character and hope. There's great cause for rejoicing. It's not just the king isn't going to kill us anymore. It's that the king says, come on into my presence. You've got eternal peace with me. You've got permanent access with me, the king says. God says, you've got my eternal unflinching favor. You never have to worry. I'll never give you what you once deserved. God says, I, I declare that you deserve all that my son deserves. And, and that not only that, I want you to rejoice and enjoy me now. It's like God invites you in and he says, come into my presence and I want you to dance and rejoice and feast and understand what you really have. And you can experience that at least to some degree now. And in fullness, the more you grasp it, the more joy you have. There's no longer a barrier between us and God. God wants us to rejoice in Him and experience all the benefits that are great cause for rejoicing. Justification is not just getting us in the gates of a relationship with God. It gives us all the privileges, all the benefits of peace and grace and access and hope with God. God holds out peace for those who are fearful and uncertain about the future. Maybe that's you. Maybe you don't have peace with other people right now. God, God says, you have peace with me. Maybe you feel like you're all alone and you're, you don't have any friends. And maybe that's true. Maybe you feel like you're all alone in the midst of a whole bunch of people. And God says, you're not alone. You have access to me. Maybe you feel like God's against you. Maybe you feel like God's displeased with you. God says, no, you, 
you have access into grace. You stand in my favor. Maybe you're being judged by other people. God says, no, you, I want you to experience my grace. Grace when you feel like you can't stand to stand in my grace. Maybe you're experiencing relational suffering and God's saying, you have hope in me because you have peace with me. Maybe you're suffering because of sin. God wants you to know the hope you have in the midst of suffering, that you have access to God to receive his grace to enable you to not sin. Maybe you are feeling unloved. You can have the hope, the assurance of seeing that that God loved you when you were actively sinning against him, when you were an enemy of God, when you were hating God, still sinning. He died for you. He gave his son for you. God doesn't reject you when you're weak and when you sin. You can have that assurance and cause for rejoicing. And maybe as you understand the peace and grace and hope and God's love for you, maybe, maybe you can go from a two to a five. You know, you might not live in a place where you're like, oh yes, this is great. But God wants us to, to experience the joy so we might grow in rejoicing. You know, we should not be a people who are downcast and despondent and despairing. If you really grasp the benefits of justification, that you've been forgiven and made one with Christ, that your life is hidden in the life of Christ, then you can have great joy and hope. Maybe you're insecure and you're looking for love and completion from other people. You can have the hope that you could never be loved more by anyone else. That's what he gives you. Amen? Let me have the band go ahead and come up and I want to sing in response to the great cause for joy that we have. We have great cause for rejoicing because we've been justified, because we have peace with God, because we have the love of God should have broadened our hearts, because we have the hope of the glory of God. And he's loved us when we didn't deserve it. Now we can be sure that now that we've been reconciled, he'll give us life. Let's pray and then we'll stand and sing.